Uh, we're continuing our series um, in what used to be called the Ten Commandments, which I call the Ten Principles. Um, and if you're curious as to why I do that, you should go back to our first sermon in this series like eight weeks ago. Um, and I kind of explain the sort of the, the underlying theology philosophy behind the Ten Principles. And, and it, it boils down to this. This has been our tagline for, uh, for the entire series. Um, holiness is what makes happiness possible. Holiness is what makes happiness possible. We are a part of a culture that says, do what makes you happy. God says, do what makes you holy. And happiness sometimes follows after that. And by holiness, God's not talking about any particular individual in this room. He's talking about a community, all of us together. And so the idea is that if we're a community that's generally characterized by these ten principles, we will be a community where human flourishing happens, where where genuine and the best kind of human life exists. And if we don't, if we don't, then we won't be holy, and we won't have the opportunity, the possibility of having what God has for us. And so let's look at the ninth principle today. Um, This is Deuteronomy 5. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Um, False testimony there, just highlight that a a quick. Uh, The the Hebrew is more like the actual word that you get false. Its primary meaning is emptiness. It's nothingness. Um, And if you look in languages that are similar to Hebrew, other Semitic languages, what we call cognate languages, um, they have a similar meaning to, a cognate language, by the way, is like in French, um, or in English, if I say incredible, in French, does anyone know the French for incredible? Incredible. Isn't that right? Incredible. It's spelled incredible, but it's pronounced like the French pronounce it. Uh, so those two words have the same meaning in, in a cognate languages. The cognate languages uh, for show, what's, what says false there, tends to mean wicked or malicious or vicious. So the, the word that we get, false testimony, show, it, it, it's bigger than that. It's, it's, it's emptiness and it's possibly, it's vicious. It's, it's wicked. It's dastardly. And so it, the, the, the stakes are raised. This isn't just a matter of truth and falsehood. This is a matter of danger. Don't give empty, wicked witness against your neighbor. Well, we know from the Bible why that's so important. There's been plenty of stories about this. One of the most famous uh, here, uh, I have a, a, a painting from 1620. This is of uh, Solomon judging the two uh, mothers. You may remember this story. Uh, in the story, two mothers are in Israel, uh, and they both claim the baby is theirs. There's one baby, two moms. And, and, and everyone's like, well, that's impossible. One of you gave birth to this baby, and one of you didn't. But they kept, they went through the court system. We'll talk more about that later. Finally, they get before Solomon himself. And Solomon's like, well, I mean, they didn't have DNA testing. So he's like, I know. Let's just be fair here. He's like, you, guard, cut that baby in half. And they can each have part. And then everybody wins, right? And so the first, the first lady is like, yeah, good call. I like that. <laughs> if I can't have the baby, she can't either. And then the second lady is like, no, 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 don't do that. Okay, honestly, just, just give it to her. Just, get, just let the baby live. And Solomon's like, I think I know who the real mother is. It's the lady who is willing to have someone else raise her child rather than let that child die. That's an interesting story, but think about what's going on. The false witness, the false testimony that the bad mom is providing. 
That's not just like, you know, little white lies. We're talking about life and death here. We're talking about taking a precious child from a woman and raising it as your own. And if that's not possible, being rather, rather that she be miserable and the baby dead. So when I say that the ninth principle can be summed up as don't lie, and that's the first or second thing in your note sheets, don't lie, that's true. But what's really going on behind the scenes here is a, is a fundamental conviction about lying, about falsehood. And that is that it's corrosive to communities. It leads to death. It leads to destruction. Last week, we saw what happens with theft. We talked about theft. When theft becomes a part of a culture, the culture breaks down. We go from a high-trust society to a low-trust society. Something similar hap- happens with lying. It's going back to the text... Don't give against, uh, really, if you were to translate the Hebrew like really woodenly, it's actually like, don't testify a wicked testimony against your neighbor. Uh, that give right there and testimony are similar words, um, and they both mean testimony. Um, why is, the, the, we tend to think that like not lying is a pretty simple thing, but it actually turns out that that's not true. Uh, in, the, in the 1990s, um, they invented, or I guess they discovered, how to use DNA evidence to, um, to, to solve crimes. And so there were a bunch of different prosecutors who went back, or defense attorneys, who went back to old cases that were already settled. And they went back and they found, using DNA, that their client had been falsely imprisoned. Um, this is, uh, Marilyn, next slide. In fully 75% of these cases in which a, fa- a person had been falsely, falsely imprisoned, it was due to bad eyewitness testimony, right? So someone said, oh, that's, your honor, that's the guy I saw doing the, the robbery or whatever. But it turned out that our, our ability to see is maybe not as reliable as we think it is. In fact, a number of psychological studies have gone on and uh, they show that an uncertain witness can be convinced by investigators that they're very certain, or vice versa. Um, and and the, once, you, once you've been convinced, you're like rock solid, even though in the moment when we, before you started talking, you were like, eh, maybe, maybe not, I'm not quite sure. Oh, yeah, no, it's definitely this person. And once you commit to that psychologically, you're invested in it. Once you're invested in saying this is what's true, you don't go back. It's very hard for people to go back on that. All right, what's this a picture of? Horse, donkey, seal. Yeah, seal. Some people see a seal. Yeah, this is this is one of those uh, those funny ones where it's like if you look at it, say if you say the seal, the seal. If you're looking at the seal, the, like the, where the horse's nose would be, that's the face, and then like the flippers, and then the flippers at the top. Um, and then if, if you're looking for the horse, where the flippers would be, those are eyes, and then a, a mouth and a nose. So the, the psychologists, they did this awesome study where um, they, they took like a whole bunch of people and they sat them down. And first, they had uh, like, identify these pictures. They had a whole bunch of pictures, and this was one of them. And about 50-50, maybe 60-40 of the people said horse versus seal. But it was, it was pretty close. So they did another group of people. And they said, here's the deal. Um, we're going to show you a bunch of pictures of animals. Every time you correctly identify a farm animal, we're going to give you money. And every time you misidentify a farm animal, 
or, or misidentify a sea animal, we're going to take it away from you. And so they did the test again. Suddenly, everyone sees a horse. Hmm. They're like, well, maybe it's just because it looks like a horse. They did it the other way. They said, all right, we're going to show you a whole bunch of pictures of animals. If every time you correctly identify a sea animal, we are going to give you money. And lo and behold, everyone saw a seal. What does that tell us about human perception? We see what we want to. Desire, and we, we've done so many studies on this. Um, in, in fact, we've even done, a, we, I, I haven't, but scientists have, uh, have done fMRIs and MRI scans on brains to see what goes on when we're perceiving. And it turns out that what's actually happening most of the time is our brain is filling in details that we can't see. We can only look at one thing at a time. And so the brain actually fills in the background for us. And so they've done all these crazy studies with people who have um, a disconnection between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And it's crazy how the, the brain is supposed to supply a story, a narrative. That's a, fa- that's a fun term these days. To, to make sense of all of the different facts we see. And what it turns out, it turns out that 90% of the time we see what we want or we expect to see. And so it's, it's not that not lying isn't complicated. It's that it's really hard because we as human beings have a really hard time knowing what's true. God knows this. Uh, and so God, God um, he, when the, the Israelites are coming out of, of the land, or out of slavery and they're going into the land, uh, there's this bit at the very beginning of Deuteronomy. It's uh, where the ten, the 10 principles are. At the very beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses is just, he's, he's overwhelmed because all the people come up to him because they want him to settle their disputes. Oh, this is my chicken. This is my goat. Moses, tell us which one it is. And Moses is a prophet. He's respected. So they assume that he's going to have special access to the truth. Well, finally, Moses is breaking down. He's like, how can I bear your problems, your burdens, and your disputes all by myself? Just before that, he's like, there's so many of you. Like, there's tons and tons of you. It's, I can't, I can't, I, I got, I got work to do. Like, I can't do, I'll spend all day. So I'll tell you what. Choose from the people. Choose some wise, discerning, respected men from each of your tribes. A little bit sexist, I know, but that was a long time ago. And I will set them over you. What ended up happening uh, was that smaller settlements would, uh, so there's this anthropologist, Robin uh, Duncan, and Duncan kind of did some research into ancient societies. And for the vast majority of the time, ancient uh, people lived in groups of between 100 and 200 people. Um, and he hypothesized that that's probably the extent to a number of people we can have genuine relationships with, recognize and know something about. Once you get about 150 people, you stop having the capacity, the mental capacity to have meaningful relationships. And as a result, communities tended to mirror that. And so communities tended to be between 100 and 200 people. And so in those communities, the smaller ones, they would uh, elect three judges. Three judges would come and hear all the different trials. As you got to bigger towns, like in the thousands range, they uh, had uh, 23 judges in those uh, selected from amongst the people, most of them priests, but also respected people from the community. And finally, at the very largest um, size was what we call the Sanhedrin. And I got a picture of that here. You may remember that uh, Jesus faces the Sanhedrin when he's being condemned to death. 
And the Sanhedrin was a circular group. Uh, this is from Solomon's temple, not Herod's temple. Not that it matters too much. But on one side, there's 35 people. On the other side, there's 35 people for a total of 70. And at the very center is the chief priest who's, who uh, he decides to uh, ties. He's the tiebreaker. And these groups, by the way, uh, the, the smallest ones, three, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't try capital crimes. Um, they could handle some money disputes, but the, it had to be a larger group. And if you remember, when we talked about murder, the sanctuary cities, uh, that's, those sanctuary cities had judgments of 23, uh, people so that a person could come and what would happen, the accused would come up. They didn't really have lawyers. The accused would, accused would tell their side of the story. The, the judges would listen to the side of the story of the other person, very much like Solomon and the two moms, right? And then at the very end, they would confer and then they would pass judgment. And of course, in our contemporary society, that's the juries, right? We, we um, don't hand this off to uh, professionals. We have citizens make these decisions because it's uh, believed in our country that um, the citizens will have less, it, it, they'll be less likely to be um, swayed one way or the other, whereas people of influence and power might be interested in protecting their influence and power. Why, I mean, this is obviously not a perfect Solution. It's obviously not ideal. But why do we do this? And the reason we do it is because we want to have the best opportunity to see from every single side. And have people who are wise like Solomon, discerning, trying to figure out who's telling what. And maybe, maybe someone comes in, they're mistaken. Maybe they believe with all of their heart that this happened, but they could be wrong. And the only, the best way that we have to sort that out is by using something like a trial-by-jury system. What that means for us, though, it means that we have to be careful about what we believe to be true. Because there's a very strong possibility that we're wrong. That's the next thing in the ninth principle. Don't just see what you want to see. It helps to get counsel. Now, probably the most important word in this command is the last word. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Do you remember Jesus' answer to that question? What does he, what does he do? When so, the, like the lawyer is like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? What does Jesus say? Parable. parable, the parable of the good Samaritan. Right? Jesus says, oh, you want to know who your neighbor is? And he tells the story of a man who's, uh, who's walking along the road. He's traveling somewhere. He gets beat up by bandits and left for dead. And then, like, uh, some very powerful, influential people, some religious people, they walk by. And they don't bother with, with that man. They're busy. They have important things to do. Let that guy, you know, get out on his own. And finally, the good Samaritan, the Samaritan who's an outsider amongst the community, who would not have been considered really a member of Israel, is the one who looks at the guy and is like, someone should help this guy. I'll do it. And then Jesus says, he doesn't say who your neighbor is. He says, no, go, go and do likewise. Meaning that a neighbor in Jesus' mind, in God's mind, is, is anyone who's a member of the community of faith. Any one of God's people. This is really, really important because there are times when the community of faith is challenged from the outside. And there come times, and some of you might be a little nervous about this, but I promise you it's the truth. There are some times when it's okay to lie. 
For example, um, Moses, when he was, uh, when he was born, um, there was a, a pogrom going around. There, the Pharaoh was trying to eliminate uh, Jewish babies, Hebrew babies. And so uh, I got a picture here of, of this where uh, Moses' mom sends uh, his sister Miriam. She's the one on the right side of, of the, the, the painting in, in the dark. And they, they put um, baby Moses in, in, a, in a basket and they float him down the Nile River to avoid being killed. And it just so happens that the Pharaoh's daughter walks by and sees the, the, the baby crying in the basket and has compassion on him. And is like, oh, I want to take care of this baby. And Miriam just like kind of, oh, I can help you with that. She's like, who are you? I'm just, just one of your friendly... Hebrew slaves. My mom could raise that baby for you until at least, you know, he's suckled if you want. And Pharaoh's daughter's like, ah, it's a great idea. Miriam was a little stretching the truth there a little bit. She knew exactly who that baby was. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute is most famous because when the, the Hebrew spies were held, she uh, let them stay at her place. And when the, the guys came knocking, like, are there any Hebrew spies here? She's like, nope, got no Hebrew spies. And she ends up becoming honored as one of the part of the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. I don't know how it all shakes out, you know, when we're up there before the Lord, but I can tell you this. I'm pretty sure that when the Nazis come knocking and they ask how many Jews I've got in my attic, the answer is going to be zero. Because there's something special about the community of faith. There's something special about God's people. And sometimes in oppressive totalitarian regimes, we, we are forced in some cases to deceive the authorities, deceive the powers to protect God's people. We're lucky to have lived in America for a really long time. America has been a place that has generally not uh, persecuted um, Protestant Christians. Uh, but that time may be coming to a bit of an end. And how we respond to that might have to take something of the character of the Jewish people. That's the next thing in your notes. <laughs> the Bible seems to be okay with lying in order to protect God's people. Now, obviously, Sam, don't lie. Okay, like, that's, that's, unless someone's like, tell me where your parents are so that I can find them and hurt them. Then you're like, oh, they're up the street, not in this house. You see what I'm saying? This is not, and, and even that might not be the best thing, but it's the, it's the least of all possible evils or something like that. The lesser of two evils. Okay? So, that, you do not, children have, you know, you can't, lie to your parents, but sometimes it's okay. What's most important though, is yeah, that's how we treat the outsiders. We, we, don't, we don't owe them the truth all the time. Most of the time we do, but not all the time. But with insiders, that's where the people of God, that's where the neighbor thing really starts to matter. That's where it matters is, is, is the people in the community of faith. Who's my neighbor? And how do I treat them? They did a study a couple of years ago, a thousand adults. And they asked them, uh, is gossiping bad? <laughs> 67% said it's usually or always bad. But 50% said they do it anyway. 
Now, gossip is, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's two types of gossip. There's gossip where, really what gossip is, is it's, it's just talking about someone who's not there. Right? So you're having a conversation. You, A and B, are in the conversation. We're talking about C, who's not part of it. Right? And sometimes that's a good thing. Because, like, you know, I might be like, hey, Haley, I know that your brother's at college, but man, what a great kid he is. I really like and respect him. That would be, that's right. He's not there to defend himself. You know, no, I'm terrible. He was not there. He's not there to tell the truth. But what, what I'm doing is that's a positive thing, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sharing something good. That's builds him up, right? It's potentially has a good, good thing. However, I could also be like, hey, Haley, sure, I'm glad Christian's at college because man, he bothers me. That, you see, it's the same principle. It's just that right there might not be building up the community of faith super well, right? Uh, here, this one's interesting. Number two, uh, the, the same anthropologist who talks about, uh, Duncan, who talks about, um, you know, the size of, of human communities, he also did studies where he would let people just uh, sit in a room and just talk. And then he would, uh, you know, tally what they're talking about. 60, uh, 66, 67% of the time, what we do when we're talking is talking about people who aren't there. Free talk, free talk is, uh, we're, we're almost always, um, telling stories about other people. Again, that could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, but it is very interesting. That's what we do. Uh, we've noticed now that social media has, um, dramatically changed its evolved gossip. This is interesting. So they've done uh, fMRI studies on people who are clicking on social media. And one of the things they found, also people who talk or talk about others, when you talk about others, when there's two of you and you're talking about somebody who's not there, it increases feelings of intimacy between you and the person you're talking to. And we can see that on brain scans. It's very interesting. It causes intimacy when we talk about someone who's not there. The same thing happens when you like a photograph on instant, on social media. It has the same, uh, dopamine hit to the brain. The, the neural response is very similar. And so what's happened is it used to be you had to like get into a room with somebody or, you know, in the, in the shadows and talk about stuff. And then you would feel closer to that person and you would be discussing someone who wasn't there. Now you don't even have to be in the same room. You could be across the country, across the world. All you have to do is post a photo and see that it's liked. My understanding is that uh, if you—I I don't do a whole lot of the Facebook, but or the Insta, Insta chat, whatever it is—but um, my understanding is like you, I can like something, right? And then other people can look and see that I've liked it. Is that true? Huh. Interesting. So what you're telling me is that if I don't like something, people might notice. Because there's no thumbs down, right? Facebook doesn't have a thumbs down button. It has a thumbs up button. But people might notice if they're hawks, if they're looking. Or people might uh, notice that I haven't responded to their, their thing. Or they might see that I, I have. And it might turn out that just as when we're talking about somebody who's not there, we have the same motives and, and the same ability to exclude simply by not clicking or clicking a mouse. Oh, I'm sorry. Phone. The last, last thing there. 
one of the uh, things that they found is when two people are talking about a person who's not there, uh, they always, um, it creates feelings of intimacy, no matter what, no matter if it's positive or negative. It always causes us to come together. Um, when it's negative, when we're talking bad about somebody and talking crap about someone behind their back, it creates a feeling of intimacy, but also turns us into them. Which is very helpful if you're trying to protect your community from outsiders. But it is very corrosive if you're trying to create a unity amongst insiders. However, uh, positive gossip creates feelings of awe, inspiration, group intimacy. Because you start to realize that your community is bigger and stronger than you thought it was. Because this person that you don't know so well is actually amazing because they do X, Y, or Z. I bring this up because the neighbor bit is so important. What God is saying is God is saying, I, I'm asking you to tell the truth the best that you can in order to make the community stronger, in order to create tighter bonds, in order to create feelings of intimacy and unity. Last thing in your note sheet is this, the ninth principle, truth-telling is meant to build up a community, not destroy it. There are times when it's okay to just not say something. It's all right. What we're doing should be something that, that is making the community better. That's what the truth is supposed to do. But sometimes it doesn't. Or sometimes we think it's the truth, but we're wrong. And then we break things down. As always, the last picture. Um, no Persian represent, representation either. Like, really bad. This, this picture is only representing some of our people in our country. But the Cheshires, you are excluded. Brent and Orchid, there are no Asian Americans or Persians in this community. You are gone. You're out. Excommunicated. I jest. But, I mean, the point, of course, is that it doesn't matter what we look like or where we're from. What we're supposed to be doing is building each other up. And lies in their most naked form are vicious. They can, they can destroy that. And sometimes we think we're telling the truth, but we're not. And we've got to be careful about that. And other times, it just feels really good to talk about someone behind their back. The ninth principle isn't just, just don't lie. It's not don't, you know, testify against, you know, your neighbor wrongly. It's build your neighbor up and use the truth to do it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are people who desperately need to be in community with you and with each other. And God, you've given us a great deal of power with our words. May we, you strip us of any malicious, vicious intent. May we not carry empty, vicious testimonies. May we be careful, God, in your spirit and 
in the community of faith. Show us what's real and what's not, because sometimes it's really hard to tell. And we, we think we've got it figured out. We think we've got it pegged, and we find out we're wrong. Give us the grace to recognize that and to, to have the wisdom of, of our and counsel of our elders and friends to show us what's real and what's true. And God, may our truths build each other up. May we see the best in the people next to us and around us. May we share that. May we share their victories and their triumphs. And may we have the grace to overlook some of their weaknesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.